so good to be with you. Um, our, my name is uh, David uh, Smith, uh, Father David. I'm a, a priest for Family Ministries and Education here at Church of the Resurrection, if you're newer. Um, and our, our rector, our head pastor, Father Brian Poppy, is on a, uh, a vacation with his uh, family for spring break. Um, so he'll be back next Sunday. But I have the privilege of, of preaching today um, on this third Sunday of Lent about some really poignant passages. Um, I'm really excited. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, pull out your, your copy of the text. If you have a phone, a device, whatever, uh, pull up the Bible in front of you. I'd love for you to open to Exodus chapter 3, which was that um, uh, first passage that we read of, of Moses coming to the burning bush on, on Mount uh, Horeb. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in all the Bible. It's just uh, awesome. So we're going to talk about it today. Uh, and I, I want to... Um, kind of bring that story to life and talk about some of the elements there. And then also, if you want to uh, keep a, a marker in Luke 13, which, which we just read, we're going to look at both stories. Um, and so the sermon's probably going to be an hour, hour and 15 today. So if you guys, we got two full passages to preach rather than the normal 25, in my case, 35 minutes. Um, so uh, Exodus 3, though, I, I think before we jump into, uh, and I'm not joking, I know you guys are laughing, but I mean, get ready, hunker down. So in Exodus 3, I know that we, we come to this passage and it's like, wow, the burning bush, and we talk about this, but it, we might have forgotten a little bit of the context of what's going on with Moses and what, how he got here. Um, Moses, in chapter 2, if you kind of uh, um, switch, or if you flip back, Moses has been rescued out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, uh, Pharaoh was trying to kill all the newborn sons uh, of the Hebrews. He's a Hebrew. He was uh, uh, saved through the water in a basket by his mom. The, the daughter of Pharaoh uh, gets him. He's raised up in the Egyptian household. Okay, so he's an Egyptian prince at this point, like really high up, posh lifestyle, comfortable, whatever. But then he somehow he knows he is also a Hebrew. And um, Moses, it says in chapter 2, verse 11, when he had grown up, he went out to his people, his people, think about the possessive there, and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. It literally says uh, one of his brothers. So these are his, he, he's got this sense of belonging to this people that he's now realizing I've been implicated in, and, I'm, and I'm part of this, this group that is oppressing and um, being uh, uh, unjust to this other group of people who are actually my kin, who are actually my brothers. Well, he looked this way and that, it says, which is kind of a funny way to say it, but he looked around, is anyone watching? And he's like, surely he's going to do something. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, it says, and hid him in the sand. Hit him in the sand. He buried him. So he's, he's hiding this act, this brutal act he's done. He thinks he's being just. He thinks he's acting in defense of his people. Well, the next day he goes out and to summarize, he sees two Hebrews arguing and he's like, why don't you guys stop arguing? And one of the guys turns to him and says, who made you prince over us? Who made you our judge? You're going to kill us like you just killed the Egyptian? Well, then uh, uh, Moses is, is taken aback. Um, they're not very appreciative for what he just did. He's ashamed. He's afraid. And he runs. He runs. Uh, Pharaoh finds out about it, gets mad, wants to kill um, Moses. Moses runs. So Moses goes away into the desert to the east, so across like what we would know as uh, like northern Saudi Arabia, into a place called Midian. Uh, meets a girl, um, and her father uh, approves of the marriage. They have sons. He becomes a shepherd of uh, his father-in-law's flocks. So here we are in chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
So he's been there for 40 years at this point. 40 years have passed since he was a prince of Egypt. 40 years have passed since he murdered a man. 40 years have passed since he uh, ran away. It says, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, literally the backside of the wilderness, like the butt end. The same word, backside. You see, if you have a King James or a New King James, it's, it keeps that word, the backside of the wilderness. So like the other end, um, he's remote. I mean, we're talking a long way. He's almost all the way back to Egypt at this point compared to where he was. And he comes to this mountain. He comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, this is Sinai, Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. There's so much going on here I wish that we could talk about. Uh, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. So Moses turns aside to see what's going on. So we got to pause. Think about this man. Think about Moses. Where has he come from? He's no longer an Egyptian. He's no longer a prince of Egypt. He's a shepherd. A shepherd is like, an Egyptian would never be a shepherd. If you go back and look at the, the, back, kind of the backgrounds of, of this time period, like the shepherds were looked way down upon. This is low class. He's gone from the palace to the dumpster. He's isolated and alone. He's, in the, he's on the backside of the wilderness. He's not even like riding the wilderness. He's on the backside of the horse is what's going on. That's the imagery here, okay? He doesn't even have his own flock. He's not a shepherd of his own estate. He's shepherding his father. He's working for his dad, his father-in-law. In every way, Moses is in a position of shame. In every way, Moses is in a, what would be considered a shameful situation compared to where he had been. If this was what he was born in, if this is what he knew, it might be different, but he has fallen so far. And he comes to the mountain and um, because we don't have time to get into it, we'll just say simply, God appeared to him in the bush. And what does Moses do? What's his first reaction after he realizes this is God? Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid. And then God says, I'm going to send you to the people. And Moses says, who, who am I? Who, 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 am I? who am I to go? And lest we think this is humility, um, when God reassures him, he continues, he continues to give excuses. There is immense shame at work in Moses' life at this point. And the way that he's relating to God is massively influenced by the shame that is marking his life based on past events. Things that he has done and things that have been done to him. Things that were out of his control and things that were under his control. Let's go and look at Luke 13 real quick as well. Um, in a word, the first part of our reading, they're like, what do you think about these disasters that, has ha that have happened? And Jesus basically very quickly disabuses his listeners of the idea that you can draw a straight line between bad events and sin. That's not how it works in the world. You can't draw those lines. God says, uh, Jesus turns the question to say, you worry about repenting. Don't try to figure out what the cause of the bad event was. And to kind of illustrate this, here's a woman who is afflicted by Satan for 18 years. We, have the, we, we know that she wasn't born with this condition. 
He makes it clear here that it's been for 18 years. She's probably older than 18, right? So this is something that developed in her. So in the same way with Moses, she was probably just a normal young girl in the area. Um, she's, she's growing up, and then she gets this disease, this affliction, and she, uh, is, um, she ends up having a curvature of the spine where she's bent and cannot stand up. There's a lot of uh, people or scholars will try to figure out what this, what this sickness is. They don't know because um, we're not told. We're actually told there's a spiritual element here too. It's a spirit of disability that Satan has bound this woman for 18 years, but there's a, there's a spiritual and physiological element together here. So she is bent. And in this time, based on what the, the, the questions that we saw at the beginning of the chapter and based on what we know of the time, there was this link between if something's wrong with you, it must be because of sin in your life or sin in your parents' life. In John 5, there's a blind man that they ask, hey, what was the sin that he committed or his parents committed that he was born blind like this? And Jesus says, that's not how it works. God's glory is about to be displayed in this guy. But they thought that you could link this, this disability to sin. That wasn't the case here. So there's immense shame around this disability. Something must be wrong. I am ashamed because of my condition. This is what's going on in her life. And Jesus looks over to her. Now look, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. So what's, what's going on here? It's, it's their Sabbath, so like our Sunday, it's Saturday for them. They're in the synagogue, the place where they all go to gather, to have religious uh, readings, to have the scriptures read and to have the dialogue. And they would very often have guest preachers come in and teach in the synagogue if they were visiting. Jesus is visiting He's an incredibly popular itinerant preacher. He's in a position of honor. He's being, I mean, if you're, if you're popped up in front of everyone to teach on this Sabbath day in the synagogue, the town synagogue, like you are the center of attention at that moment. You have, you're in a position of honor. You have the floor. It's a tremendous responsibility. It's a tremendous honor in that culture, in that, in that, uh, even in that little town, right? So he looks over and sees her. So where is she? Is she in the middle of everybody? Where do you think she was? Probably on the perimeter, right? Where she's invisible, Christ sees her. Sees her in her condition. And he calls her over. We'll get into that. But look at this woman and her, 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 her position, her, her situation that, is, that brings on her a lot of shame. She probably can't work. She's probably not married. Um, in both situations, both in Moses' life and in this woman's life, we see shame at work. And sometimes it's something that they've done. Sometimes it's something that is done to them. They could be a victim. But shame is at work in, in lives here. Sin and shame and brokenness are at work in their lives. And the reality is that we all also carry shame in our lives. Sometimes it's because of something that we've done. Sometimes it's because of something that's been done to us. And I want to talk a little bit about that shame. And I want to use a little bit of a metaphor here of like cleaning your bedroom. You might be like, I don't really have that much shame or I have really bad shame. Or like, how do we, how do we kind of sift through the different levels of shame in our life? Um, so if you go into my bedroom, um, uh, everyone pray for my wife. You go into my bedroom, you'll find my clothes, uh, some of my clothes in a certain spot, and they're supposed to go in a different spot, right? They're supposed to go in the drawers. They're not supposed to be next to my bed. Okay. Um, I'll have some clean clothes folded on top of my dresser. Just put them in the drawers. It's like, I'll get to it. Okay. 
So if I'm like, if, if someone's coming to clean the house, I've got to clean the house so they can clean the house, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? But you're not actually cleaning the house so they can clean the house. What are you doing? You're picking up the house, right? You're decluttering the house, right? So there's this first level of, if you come in my room, the first level of, of, of order is like, hey, let's just get the clutter out and let's straighten up, right? So let's make the bed. Let's get the toys off the ground. Like, let's get the little baby corral thing that we use while we're taking a shower and put that out here. Um, the stuffed animals. Okay, you get that out of the way. So there might be some really obvious sin and shame in your life that's right on the surface. That if someone, if you were to just open the door, just open the door, no work, it's immediately evident that there's this baggage in your life. There's this sin, there's this shame right on the surface. Maybe you're addicted to a substance, alcohol, drugs. Maybe you're addicted to gambling. Maybe you're cheating on your spouse. Maybe it's something that's been done to you. Maybe there's been abuse in your life. Um, maybe there has been a financial hardship, something that you couldn't, um, you couldn't prevent. But something has happened that has brought pain and shame on you in your life. It's right there on the surface. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you're like, I don't have anything super obvious like that in my life right now. Well, once you've picked up everything, what's next? Then you look down and you go, oh my goodness, that's a, that's a piece of blueberry that's hardened to the point of calcification that my, my child left on the car, you know, it's been there for three months. Haven't been able to, you know, you get down a little bit closer and it's still, it's still visible to the eye. So you're like, oh, there's some crumbs, there's some hair. I didn't realize people shed this much. And uh, you, you, you start to, okay, well, let's get out the vacuum, right? So you start to vacuum. Everyone loves vacuuming. Okay, so then you see the thing. You're like, man, I didn't realize that was all there, but I can see it, right? Like it's pretty, I could have, if I'd gotten on my hands and knees, like there's, some, there's another level here in your life. So like maybe you're not cheating on your spouse, but you're, you're watching uh, things online that you should not. Or maybe you don't uh, abuse your family, but you uh, have outbursts of anger and rage at your family that um, you can kind of hide from other people. And really, it's not all the time, but it's in your life. And there's shame that comes from that. Or maybe um, something's happened to you. Maybe you weren't abused, but there was verbal uh, abuse or there was emotional uh, distance from your family. There's that other level that's a little more hidden, but you can still see it and feel it. And you don't have to work too hard to get to it. A lot of us are dealing with that kind of shame too. Um, and then there's that, that next level of sin and shame that you can take place in our lives. And you're like, wow, we vacuumed? Looks great. You can see the like, marks on the carpet. Looks like we cleaned. If someone came over, they'd think it's clean, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they think it's clean? But then you get out the carpet cleaner. And you go over that baby with soap and water. You can rent one from Home Depot for like $129, I think. Womp. And then you got your reservoir, and oh my, Are you kidding me? It's black water. That was in the carpet. That was on the floor. You've got stuff down in there that you can't see. That is not even to your, you live in the room and you can't see it. You might actually need some outside help to get that up. You might actually go to see a counselor. You might be talking in a relationship and, and stuff triggers you that brings up shame. So like, the littlest stuff. So for me, I'll give you an example of little stuff. Because, you know, there's always, if I, talk, if I told you about like my big stuff or whatever, there's always like this, um, this line you're trying to play with vulnerability when you're up front. But this one I feel really safe telling you about. Um, I was a really bad student in school, in high school. I was a really bad student in uh, early years of college. Um, I was a procrastinator. I didn't finish my tasks. I didn't do my homework. I remember crying in sixth grade when I got my first F. Do you know about that? Um, 
Um, got my first F in English. Why? I didn't turn stuff in. Did you do your homework? No. What were you doing? You know, other, other things, hanging out with friends, football, video games, whatever. So over time, like, there's this, you know, you have, you have more potential than this. You have, you, this isn't, you know, there, shame ends up coming into the conversation and coming into um, my life. And there's then a narrative that takes place around shame. Oh, I'm, I'm not good at, I'm, I'm not good at doing tasks. I'll never be responsible enough. I'll never be able to get like a real job. I need to do something like that's more on my feet. I can't focus. I have ADD. I can't focus. So there's these narratives that, t- that start to take place around shame that then define how we understand ourselves. Then, if that shame, if those points of shame come up, we are then vulnerable. Okay? So here's the, here's the, here's the kicker with shame. When points of shame are brought up or when they are triggered in certain situations, we are then laid bare to different extents in our relationships. So when two years ago we had on our to-do list to do our living will, my wife and I, and I procrastinated for a very long time, whenever my wife would say, hey, did you do the will yet? What happened in me? There's this response triggered by shame. I can either retaliate, or what we all do is to get away from it, we deflect and we hide. See, neurologically, um, if, you, if you guys, I would love to recommend to you a resource called uh, The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist um, who also looks at this from a Christian standpoint. But neurologically, what's happening, we're actually running from a source of pain when shame is triggered in us. So when some of our dirt is brought up or when someone sees our dirty clothes or when we go to vacuum, we want to uh, separate from someone and hide our face. Look what Moses does. God calls him to something great. He's like, I'm not great. I'm a shepherd who doesn't even have a flock. Who am I? He deflects, he hides. And we do the same thing. Um, We're gonna talk about what's needed but just to get into it a little bit more, when we come to a place of vulnerability and to a place of sh- where, where we have shortcomings or we have faults or where we've sinned, shame takes place when that vulnerability is met with contempt or met with accusation rather than met with connection and safety and then a redirection towards change. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example. I can produce tremendous shame in my child if when she disobeys, I say, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? What am I doing? I'm not, I'm not engaging with safety and with empathy and with love to then provide correction. I'm actually, I'm engaging with accusation and with contempt. Do you see? And what then happens is in a moment of vulnerability, when she's done something she either she knows or doesn't know is wrong, I've actually attached contempt to that shortcoming. That shortcoming then becomes a source of shame. And neurologically, we take that pain in that moment and we, she, she, she screams and runs and hides, which is super, you know, she's two, so then she like, she runs and hides. But what do you do when you're 32 and you're in a job? You look away, you deflect. It's not my fault. You hide. You avoid pain. This becomes patterns in our life. 
Um, this is how shame will manifest itself um, over and over and over again in our lives if we don't deal with it and if we don't find safe, a safe relationship within which to find change and healing in our points of shame, our points of shortcomings. So what, is, what does God do? When God sees our, as our heavenly father, when he sees our shortcomings, when he sees our sin, when he sees our bondage, when he sees that thing at any one of those three levels, when he sees that in our life, what does he do? How does he as a heavenly father respond? Because look what he could have said to Israel. If we go back, well, we'll, we'll stay since we're in Luke 13. Let's stay here. Look what Jesus could have done. He could have seen the woman out on the side and completely ignored her. Or he could have said to everyone, look at this woman. Can you imagine what her parents did? Can you imagine what she did to contract this, this illness? Can you imagine what would have happened for Satan to bind her? Contempt could have been attached to this bondage. An immense shame could have been heaped on her. Or if we go back to Exodus 3, Jesus or God could have responded to Moses and to Israel in a lot of different ways. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have surely seen the affliction of my people here in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Already in that statement is, is intense empathy and intense attention and intense fatherly care. But let's just step back for a second. He could have said, you? You're slaves. I'm the maker of the universe. You're the least of all the nations. You think that I want to help you? You know I'm all-knowing, right? You know that when I take you out of there, you're actually going to disobey me. You're actually going to worship idols. You know you're actually going to grumble. Within three days of me saving you out of bondage, you're going to say that you're really thirsty and you want to go back. You think I would spend my time with someone like you? Do you think you're worth saving because of all the trouble you're going to give me? Does God say that? No. Who should I say sent me? I am that I am. I will be with you wherever you go. I am the God who keeps covenant. I am the God who shows mercy. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And when every single time someone falls short, I keep my promises and I run after those who are in a mess and I create the context for relationship where you can come back to me. I'm actually gonna send you, Moses, into the slavery land, into Egypt. And you're gonna go to Pharaoh, the man himself. And you're gonna, you're gonna be my messenger and I'm gonna provide deliverance and there's going to be plagues and there's going to be a great separation of this Red Sea and they're going to come to this mountain so that I will be with them and they will be with me. I'm going to provide this great deliverance from bondage so that we can be together in relationship. I'm going to accomplish and achieve and provide the safe context for you to come out of bondage into relationship with me. That is what I'm going to do. That's who I am. This is my name and this is how I should be remembered for every generation uh, until time immemorial. This is the kind of God I am. I run after those in bondage and those in slavery and I rescue them out and I bring them to myself. Not because of what they've done, but because of who I am. This is what God says. In the face of whatever your bondage is, whatever your affliction is. And look at Jesus. What does he do? In Luke 13. I love this. It's very, very similar, very, very similar verbs to 
what we see in Exodus 3. Jesus saw her. Um, shame forces us, shame, shame helps us, to, or makes us to tell us narratives about ourselves um, that we're on. on worthy that we are not seen, that we are alone in whatever it is that we're doing. Jesus saw her. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows. Jesus is not surprised. Every single part of your life, he knows you better than you know yourself. All your brokenness, all your sin, the one thing that you've been hiding that no one else knows about, that if I couldn't possibly, I would be ruined if I told somebody. Jesus already knows it. He, see, he sees. That might terrify you. You might have only experiences of people knowing your points of shame and then that leading to contempt and not healing. But look what, it hap- look what happens with Jesus. Look how good Jesus is. He sees and then he calls her over. He, ca- he draws her in. He dignifies her. He brings her, this daughter of Abraham, who is not more important than a donkey to the Pharisee, Jesus dignifies and brings over and says, woman, you are freed from your disability. He frees her. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't accuse her. He frees her. God answers our affliction with deliverance, not with condemnation. And he touched her. He put his hand on her. violating all kinds of norms. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. When God sees your sin and your shame, he provides deliverance. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ. And you see, just like the Exodus where Moses went in, he preached the message of deliverance to Pharaoh and then divided the sea so that we could go out into the holy mountain to see God not we, the Israelites, to go to see God. In the same way, Jesus, after his time in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, he goes and preaches the message of deliverance to Israel. He's killed, and then when he's on the cross, what divides? A curtain. Just like the Red Sea, a curtain is torn. What curtain? The curtain that gives access to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, just like Mount Sinai. Jesus is the second Moses, the second deliverer who provides a way through his death on the cross for you and I to have access with boldness and faith to God. Why is this good news? Because when you come into the presence of God, you have the opportunity to do the one thing that can destroy shame. The antidote to shame is vulnerability. The antidote to shame is vulnerability. When you bring that thing into the light in the context of a safe relationship where you can find healing and restoration, shame is destroyed. So, whatever that thing is, what is it? Those multiple things. God is saying, through Christ, you have full forgiveness. He bore your shame in his body on that tree. You come here, and in this sanctuary, in this holy of holies where the curtain's been torn, at this Mount Sinai where the bush is burning but not consumed, you can be totally vulnerable. You can totally give up that thing to God that you won't tell anyone else. And you can find not contempt, but healing. And that is tremendous news. 
because every single one of us at some level have something that we need to give to him. The response of faith, not the response of fear, not the response of diversion and escape and isolation, but the response of faith is the response of vulnerability before a God who loves you and sees you and has provided a way out for you. When you do that, you then actually have the opportunity to be restoried. Your narrative is no longer, I'm not blank enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not whatever. Your story then becomes, I am a child of God. I am eternally beloved. I am secure in Christ. My future is complete in Christ. I am not an orphan, but a child. I am not lost, I am found. I am not blind, I can see. Etc., etc., etc. All is restored and all is re narrated in the presence of God. So every week, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, God, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy, na- holy name and forgiveness and provide healing. And then when we come up, what happens? The body of Christ, the blood, the blood of, of, of sal- or the cup of salvation. You're welcome to the table. You are part of the family. You are welcome here. We're not going anywhere. You are a part of this family and shame is disintegrated by vulnerability in the context of the kingdom of God. So, my hope, my prayer, as I've been preparing this week, been working on my life and thinking about the areas of shame in my life, um, I pray that you will give that thing over to God. I pray that you will be vulnerable between you and the Lord. And then, what's really cool is when you find another person that you can trust, who also is doing this work with the Lord. And the two of you can then start to bring things into the light together. It can be a spouse, it can be a friend, just another brother or sister in Christ. And you begin to bring things into the light to one another and you don't receive condemnation or contempt from that person. You actually receive connection and empathy and you heal together. And this is where being the body of Christ comes into play. We all are on the same playing field. We're all sinners we can then have that vulnerability with one another and find healing through that vulnerability from our points of shame. All this is possible because of Christ's death on the cross where he made a way for us to come without shame, without contempt before the presence of God. And I would encourage you to go to God and give him all of your, all of your shame, all of your sorrows so that he can make uh, for you a new story of redemption. To the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.